Uh, we're continuing our series today on You Deserve More on this fourth Advent Sunday. You know, we've been talking about, throughout the series, we've been talking about a scarcity mentality and how that can affect our relationship with God. Uh, we are reminded that when we function by a scarcity mentality, we tend to hold things tighter. And while limiting our relationship with God as someone who just simply helps us hold on to those things even more tighter or to guarantee that we get to keep those things. You see, when we do this, it becomes difficult for us to really open up and to embrace what God our Father has to offer to us, to be able to trust His concept of spirituality and the way that it is relevant in our everyday life. So today, as we focus on Psalm chapter 23, verse 5, uh, I want to see how David leads us to help bridge the gap between this whole concept of spirituality that we have, that we believe that God exists, that we believe that God really is all-powerful, He's sovereign, He is good, and that He really is a part of our life. And how that kind of bleeds in into its relevance in our reality so that we hold those two tensions together. Here is the reality in which we exist. Here is the spirituality that we believe that God has given us and how those two things converge and come together in our life. So I want to invite you to open up your Bible as we read Psalm, chapter 20, uh, Psalm 23. And we're going to uh, go to verse, uh, focus on verse 5. I'll be reading from the NIV. It reads this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let's pray. Father, I pray today, these words that David wrote, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The action of you anointing my head and my cup overflowing. I pray that that symbolism, that metaphor, may we be able to taste and see its reality in ours, Lord. May we connect these things together so that we fully comprehend not just in concept, but in our experience, what this means for our everyday life. So we commit all of this to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure when it happened to me, but I distinctly remember how I viewed myself and my possibilities when I was a child. You know, when I was younger, I felt like anything was possible as long as I worked hard and I committed to it. I felt like there was so much time to be able to accomplish certain things and, and things felt a lot more simpler back then. I didn't have to contend with so many mistakes or the twists and turns that life brought my way. In those earlier days when I heard God and God's promises, it felt like it was so much more 
of a possibility. So much more that I could grow into. So much more that I could hope for. But as I began to live life and the older I got, I began to experience so many unexpected twists and turns on my journey. These twists and turns, it would happen because something bad would happen in my life. It'd take me off track. And as I got off track, lost my way a little bit, and then once when I got back on that path again, back on track again, I felt like something was lost. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but even when I was back on track, it felt like it wasn't with that same 100% that I had before. Some, a little bit of something was missing. There was a little bit of energy that was taken out of my step, a little bit of hope that was taken out of my, of my thoughts and my joy. You know, as this rhythm continued throughout my life, God's word, it also began to shift a little bit more towards imagery rather than a possible reality. It seemed like the more I experienced life, the more I experienced the downturns, the more I experienced these hardships that came into my life and these uh, ways that drove me in areas that I did not expect or tore me down, I began to see a subtle shift beginning to happen in my life where the reality that I believed the gospel to be became more and more of a concept, became more and more of a hope wishful thinking than it actually did a reality that was possible in my life. It became a little bit more distant and out of touch. I realized it became easier to accept God's gospel as a feel-good story and a temporary spark to get me through my worst days. A reminder that there is hope that's somewhere out there. But that spark, or when I went to church and, and I got revived, or I went to this retreat, it wasn't so much where God's reality became more of a reality in mine. But what I noticed, this tendency that began to take place, is that it only strengthened my resolve, or it was a pick-me-up so that I could feel stronger in myself or hope again in my own strength, hope again to try again in my own ways to get going, thinking that God is somewhere in that background that's going to bless or support my way, but it was still about me. It was still about my reality, still about things that I would control. And the things that these God experiences had for me was more in the sense of supporting my view of reality my view how to handle things, my view of how to deal with my problems. You know, I don't know about you and what your experience has been, but I've seen for many of, uh, in, in my own life and many of my friends, this gap between God's reality and my own. And I, in some ways, I feel that this was one of David's intentions to address this kind of mindset for the believer through the reading of the psalm, through the writing of the psalm. 
As David too, when he was younger, experiencing God, seeing more hopefulness of how God provides, yet as the more experienced David got, the older he became, began to see a greater disconnect between where is God when my life is troubled? And experiencing so many downturns and hardships in his life and finding it increasingly more difficult to see God's hand and power in David's life when he kept failing and making mistakes. I think in this age as he's writing this and in a, perhaps in a cave as he was still running away from Saul. He's trying to bridge that gap between what feels like God's gospel, his truth, becoming more and more of a distant, out-of-reach truth than something that can really impact his reality. You know, I think sometimes for us, we begin to accept the concept that God is there. We begin to accept the concept that God can do something. We begin to accept the concept that God is good and he cares about our life. But we have a harder time embracing the reality that this can make a difference in my life. We have a harder time embracing that reality that this is relevant to what I'm going through. This is why we actually see a sudden shift that happens in the metaphor that David has been using in Psalm 23, where he starts with this whole series of this is how a sheep and a shepherd act. This is how a sheep and a shepherd, they go together. And I'm using the storyline and the experiences of a shepherd and a sheep. And he's using this metaphor throughout. And all the metaphors, they make sense. He leads me by green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me by quiet waters. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, which was sometimes a path that the sheep would have to enter. You protect me by your rod and your staff. All of these things, it, it tracks with that same metaphor until we get to verse 5. Now in verse 5, the whole metaphor, it breaks apart. Because what he says in verse 5, it doesn't track with the metaphor of a shepherd and a sheep. A shepherd never prepares a table, right? Uh, uh, prepares a meal for the sheep in the presence of its enemy. Like that's, that, that's not what a shepherd does. That's what a, a host does to a human guest, but that's not what a shepherd does to an animal. A shepherd never anoints the animal with oil on its head. And a shepherd will never bring a wine glass to a sheep and just keep filling it up as soon as the sheep lap it up. It seems odd that David suddenly breaks from the shepherd-sheep metaphor to suddenly talking about you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies and anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You know, when we first began uh, the Psalm 23 journey, one of the things that we pointed out was this shift that we also saw from the third person to the more intimate second person, where in the beginning, it says that he leads me, he does this, the third person that is mentioned about God. But as soon as we hit the climax in verse 4, of going through the valley of shadow of death, trusting God in the most difficult times with staying in my reality in which I am at, to following him through all of my concerns, all of my fears, all of my anxiety 
of thinking that God's reality might be true and traversing that dark part of our life to really see who God really is in our life. He says that when we, once we get through that, once we walk with God and trust Him and trust His reality more than ours, no matter how dark that path looks, he says it changes this concept that we have of God from the third person more distant of that's what God does. That's the concept of God to the more intimate, you do this for me. You prepare a table for me. You anoint my head with oil to this more intimate, experienced exposure of God in my reality. You see, the shift that happens for David, it's the same shift that ha should happen for us from the general concept of that's what God does to the more personal experience. That's what you do for me. See, in the same way, David is now hitting this home to let his readers know that this applies and everything that he was talking about in principle, in concept, about a, how a shepherd takes care of its sheep, to now our reality, you prepare a table for me. Let's now bring that metaphor from something that is out there symbolic to your life. This is what God does for you. Let's bring it to the human experience. I think that is what David has in mind. That's why he breaks from the metaphor and he brings it home for us. And he says, this is not just symbolism. This is not just wishful thinking. This is not just a future hope. This is your reality, what God does for each and every one of us. I want you to experience this now in your place. In other words, it's not just concept. David wants us to experience its reality. So he says this, you prepare a table before me uh, uh, in the presence of my enemies. So what's David referring to when he says, in the presence of my enemies? Well, this phrase can be best understood to mean basically this, that God demonstrates his costly love for me despite and irrespective of who's actually watching. You see, people that are hostile to me, events that are hostile to me, voices that are hostile to me will observe what God himself is doing for me. And even when that hostility now is now directed towards God, he will still do this publicly, letting all those hostilities know that whatever we go through and whether we deserve it or not, what God our Father says is, I am there with this person. You see, God doesn't care what hostilities think. God doesn't care what other people think. He offers his love for us, despite what other people may think of us. You know, for some of us, we flamed out in our faith. For some of us, we made terrible decisions of our life and we know that it was our fault. We know that there's consequences to some of the bad decisions of our life. We know that we've hurt other people and people see us in a certain way. We know that we may have failed in a certain aspect and we don't have any more respect of people that we want to have respect of among our peers, 
in our environment, in our workplaces, and they don't think that we deserve anything because we have flamed out. You may not have forgiven yourself, others may not have forgiven you, and you may still carry that shame. And others, you feel their eyes looking upon you shamefully because you have failed, because you have stumbled, because you've made terrible mistakes that have consequences not only on yourself but on others. But here's the thing. What David says in this passage is no matter what your reality is, no matter what you went through, God doesn't care what other people think. Remember the parable in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. The community, they hate the prodigal son. And the reason why they hate him is because they say there's no place in any society, in any family unit where the son should ever say to the father, I wish you were dead so I could get my inheritance sooner and live my own life. You see, that very concept of that mistake, that, that arrogance of this, of this son, they, they look at that and they say, that should not happen. We hate anyone that acts like that. We hate anyone with that kind of arrogance. And so for them, they would have beaten and scorned the son if it were not for the father. See, they're very happy that the son ran away. They're very happy now the son is suffering the consequences of his actions. So as the son returns, the villagers, their main mindset is we're going to beat him and we're going to teach him a lesson. But the father in public view of everyone, runs out to the son first, puts his cloak, which represents him, around the son, puts his ring on his finger, and publicly declares, this is my son. In fact, what we also see him do is he prepares a banquet for the son. You know, the people in the village, they don't come to the celebration banquet because of the son saying, wow, the prodigal has returned, right? We're so happy that this lost son has been returned to me. No, they hate that son. They're not appearing and they're not showing up for the sake of the son. They're showing up for the sake of the father to honor the father's wish wishes. See, the son essentially could be saying to himself that evening as he sees all these eyes of scorn upon him. My father has ordered this banquet as a gesture of my restoration in the presence of all my enemies. So all that scorn is now shifted towards God. See, the village doesn't like him. His older brother doesn't like him. And the father, in full view of everyone in the village, he demonstrates his great love for the son in spite of hatred of family and the community that's against him. You remember, like, we see this, this replayed throughout so many stories in the gospel. Remember the story of Zacchaeus, the guy, the tax collector that climbed the tree? That's what Jesus does for him as well. He climbs a tree. He's not deserving. He's been cheating everyone else. He's been playing the other side. He's been seen as a traitor. And among all the crowds that have been faithfully following Jesus, 
when Zacchaeus makes a declaration, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Anyone that I've cheated, I'll pay back four times the amount. What Jesus says to him brings scorn and hostility from all the villagers. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down because it's at your house that I will go to tonight. People are upset because there's no way that Zacchaeus deserves that kind of love, deserves that kind of treatment. You see, Jesus secures us in the presence of our enemies. That's what he says. He says to us in a public declaration, I still love you. I still want to be with you. I still believe in you. Zacchaeus, everyone dismissed him. He doesn't deserve a second chance. And by Jesus saying, I'm going to your house tonight. You are worth my time. Zacchaeus, I still love you. I still want to be with you. And I still believe in you. The prodigal son, as he doesn't even believe in himself, saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. So make me like one of your servants. Before those words take formation on his lips, the father says, you are my son. And you are restored. I still love you. I still want to be with you. I still believe in you. See, this psalm, it opens up with the declaration that the Lord is my shepherd. Because he's my shepherd, this is why I shall not want. You see, the lack of wanting isn't because suddenly the, the sheep's heart changes and says, yeah, God or the shepherd gives me everything that my heart desires. That's why I have no wants. No, the sheep still has its wants. It still has its desires, but it trusts the shepherd in such an intimate way that the sheep knows that whatever the shepherd provides is the single best thing for the sheep. Even if the sheep have other wants and other pursuits, he will not go astray for those things because he says, God or the shepherd will provide everything that I really need to satisfy my soul. So this is why the sheep is able to dismiss other paths other luring or temptations by the desires of his heart because he entrusts himself more fully to what the shepherd provides instead. See, it's a willful, I shall not want. It's not like I have no other wants. It's like I've determined for myself, despite the pull of the world, despite the pull of all these other things that my friends say that I should be going after, I reject it. Because I believe that this shepherd who satisfies my soul will continue to do so and give me everything that I need to live a godly life and live it to the full. We also learn that there's a leading aspect of the shepherd. We learn from the beginning that the shepherd, he doesn't drive us, but he leads the way. He calls out by our name. This is important because with these two principles, we now see the possibility of what it means to live as Christians. How to bridge that divide, that gap between concept of who God is and how he fulfills himself in our reality. 
you know, to a world that continually seeks to reject Christ. The hard part that we have is how do we hold those two tensions together? The reality that we live in and the belief that we have of a good God who not only makes a difference in our reality, but is our greater reality. You see, this is what will sustain us in times when our soul begins to cry out, I don't understand what's happening to me, God. Or why me? Why do I have these types of experiences? Where are you in these kinds of times? Or I'm doing what you're telling me to do, but why is it that I'm the only one that's suffering and all my other friends who don't really know you, don't really go out to church, don't really do what I do, why why do they seem healthier and in a better place than me? It's those times where we get so dark and we just question, why is my life so broken when I believe in a God that heals me? See, the answer that God provides for much of the time is what we see in today's verse. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You see, in other words, there's no promise that is there that says, I will take all of that away. No, for the younger son, the, uh, the, the father didn't promise, I will take away all the villagers, right? So there will be no one, no naysayers against you. No, he says, even in the presence of your enemies, I'm going to be with you. I'll walk through it with you. See, this aspect that what he gave, he talks about this anointing oil, and we need to bring the symbolize uh, the symbolism because we don't really understand it. We don't get what it is, but what this anointing oil was, and what they did is they found on some Egyptian practices is that this cone of oil, it looked like a cone. They would put it on top of certain women's head during public functions, right? So when they went to these um, public banquets or things like that, um, these pictographs would have this cone of oil on the woman's head. And as she walked through the night, the natural head heat of that woman would slowly melt that oil of fragrance. So in other words, all throughout the night, the strength of that fragrance, the strength of that anointing on this special woman would be smelled throughout all the guests. So it's a reminder as this host is blessing this one guest, this guest of honor, everyone would know and the intensity and the strength of that potent smell would be felt throughout wherever she went. In other words, The host is not holding anything back. He's letting those enemies know. He's letting those naysayers know, this is my anointed. This is my special guest. In fact, he even says, my cup overflows. Again, in that that respect, what would happen is the host would give a chalice to the guest of honor. And he would tell all of his servants, if he ever even takes a sip of wine, rush over and fill it up again. I want his cup always overflowing with wine, letting people know that his cup does not run dry. You see, brothers and sisters, in our hardships, 
What God promises, my presence, it goes with you. It stays with you. This anointing oil that he places on us, all of our enemies, all of our voices, all of the naysayers that are against us, they know that God's name is upon us. That God has favor upon us. That you don't touch this person. As much as this person may be going through or as we go through our hardships and we continue to face the naysayers, they know they cannot take your life. It's the same thing that Satan said to God at the point where he was trying to test Job. God says, yeah, go ahead because he is my anointed. He is the most righteous man that you will find on earth. But he says, upon his life though, you may not touch It's that anointing that God gives to each one of us that despite what we are going through, our enemies, they know they cannot touch our life. So knowing this, that that's what God wants to provide. He's not promising to take away. He's just promising that the enemies that are around us, the spiritual realities, and what we see in our reality. How do we experience that more? How do we bring that into our tangible experiences? Well, Mark chapter 6, verse 37 to 41, it helps us. Remember, that chapter was about the feeding of the 5,000. And there's parallels that we see between the feeding of the 5,000 seen there to what David is talking about here in Psalm 23. Remember, the people there are poor. They are marginalized. Many of them were hurting, felt powerless, and wondered where God was in their broken world. By the end of the story, what we see, these 5,000 people, they're not only all fed, but they had their full. In fact, Mark, he even references the story by saying he made all of the people, or in other words, all of the sheep, lie down in green pastures. If we see the Mark story, he says he's the only one out of all the gospel writers that said he made everyone sat down in the green fields. He's referencing Psalm 23. He leads me into green pastures. And there, he doesn't take away all of the poor's poverty. He doesn't take away all of the mourning's pain. But what he does is he makes sure that they are fed and they have their full despite these enemies that are around them, this enemy of poverty, this enemy of mourning, this enemy of brokenness, this enemy of of mental hardships that they're experiencing. In the midst of their enemies, God says, Jesus says, I will feed you and you will have your full. That's why you shall not want. So here's the final question. How can we begin to experience that same thing in our life? How do we bridge the gap between God's reality and our own? How do we prevent ourselves from making this just symbolism and making this just concept of what God does and thinking that it's all just depends on my own efforts to change my situation. How do I see the reality of God in my place? How does this table concept, this anointing concept, this filling my 
cup concept makes sense in my reality. Well, there's two things that we see. The first one is this. Remember, it's an invitation. Remember, the whole theme of the shepherd story is following Jesus' voice. Brothers and sisters, the main concept, the first concept here is it's an invitation. Basically, you have to show up. You know, there's a lot of voices that are around us, a lot of things that we pursue. At the end of the day, as sheep who follow Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, he makes available to all of us. We don't deserve it, and you never have to earn it. God will still speak to us. But it's up to us whether we listen. It's up to us whether we actually show up. It's up to us whether we put him as priority in our life. There are times the Holy Spirit will come and put on your heart, spend time in his word. You have to show up because there's something that God wants to reveal to you. There are times that God says, show up to Sunday service. You don't feel like it because there's something that God wants to reveal to you. You have to show up. There's no way for us to experience the reality of God shepherding us if we don't show up. If we stay on the other side and don't follow him through that dark valley, if we are determined that our fears or our own ways of navigating through our life is better than what God has to offer. See, these people, these 5,000, despite their poverty, despite where they're coming from, they made the long trek to be there with Jesus. They showed up. And in showing up, what happened? They were fed and had their fill. But it's not just about that. There's a second thing that it requires. The second thing is faith. Trusting God more than yourself. It's trusting God more than yourself. It's the second thing that we need to begin to apply into our reality. So what does that mean? Trusting God more than yourself. It means this. Remember when Jesus was trying to feed the 5,000, right? And the disciples are incredulous saying, just send them away, right? There's no way. Even if we had a year's wages, it wouldn't be enough to feed all of these people. And then Jesus asks this particular question, what do we have? And then Philip brings this one boy with two fish and five loaves. And look at his response, but what are these? How is this going to make a dent with the big need, this crazy thing that is out here of 5,000 people, right? It's not going to do anything. I don't even want to bring it. See, it takes faith and fully trusting God more than ourselves. So they bring it, and this boy says, I will give it. Even though it looks like in our reality, it won't make a difference. And what does God do with it? He makes it work. That's where concept turns into our reality. See, brothers and sisters, some of us, we have so many fears that we see the problem that's in our life and we automatically assume, I know the concept that God wants to help us. I know the concept that God can do something because he's, but can he, will he in my life? Because all I have is this. And for some of us, it's just prayer. What's prayer going to do? I don't, I don't, 
even know if prayer makes a difference. What's me showing up on Sunday going to do? What's me opening up my Bible every morning? What's that going to do? What's me going to try to engage with God and lift up these things? What's that going to do? It's only two loaves and uh, there's only five loaves and two fish. These things are nothing. It won't even make a dent. It's not significant in terms of the problem that's at hand, the 5,000 problem. See, brothers and sisters, this is where faith comes in. Where he says, bring that concept in into your reality. You may only have five loaves, two fish. And the problem that's in your chaos is so much bigger than what five loaves and two fish can handle. But God says, will you still bring that to me? And will you give that little, you know, that scarcity mentality, but this will just last me for this and I can't give this away and I might lose everything. Well, God says, will you trust me with it? That even though in your reality you think that this can't make a difference, in mine, God says, I can use that faith offering to make a difference. Brothers and sisters, how is the Holy Spirit challenging each and every one of us? Why are we not engaging? Is it possible? Because our faith has just become mere concept. That we're not practicing a surrender, a faith offering to God. And saying, God, all I can do right now is to get on my knees and pray. That's all I have. It's nothing compared to the strong realities that are out there that have real power in my circumstance. How is this prayer going to affect their hearts? How is this prayer going to change their mind when they don't even believe in you? God asks, but will you bring that prayer? In faith, will you offer that to me? And as you do, may each one of us experience this crossing, this convergence of God's reality changing our own. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who still hold a type of following of you in terms of just concept, symbolism, possibilities, and we lack the experience of living it out, of walking in it and seeing you fulfill the impossible in our reality. Will you teach us, Father Lord, how to surrender whatever our two fish and five loaves may be. Help us to overcome our unbelief and to surrender these things to you that we may really begin to see the impact that you have on our everyday life. 
for those of us who need to hear this today. Move us into action, Lord. Move us into showing up whenever your spirit leads us. Move us, Father Lord, to giving a faith offering whenever you move us to do that, Lord. And help us to keep walking with you that we may experience your goodness, your power, your presence in our life. Thank you, Father. We commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.